thanks for connecting with our online content at Holy Trinity Church in Richmond. We really hope that what we share with you will be a blessing and will help you to continue to grow in your knowledge and love of God. Good morning. As usual, copies of this sermon are at the back of the church for those hard of hearing or for those for whom English is not their first language. But let's pray before we begin. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I was a little taken aback by the theme for this morning's service, which is discipline. Don't know about you, but I have a somewhat negative response to the word discipline. Reminds me of my school days. Might be better to restrict our thinking to spiritual discipline, or more specifically, look at our passage, the specific discipline of tongue control. Not mission control, but tongue control. Last month, the Archbishop of Canterbury in York took the very unusual step of writing to Mr. Sam Margrave, a member of the Church of England's General Synod, and they asked him to be more nuanced in his comments on social media. Nuance is subtly not quite saying what you mean. And so the Archbishops rebuked Sam for his forthright language. But I wonder what they've said to some of the Old Testament prophets. Take Amos. You cows of Bashan who live in Samaria. Or indeed to the Apostle James, who can hardly be described as nuanced in his letter. Because he's very blunt and to the point. He calls a spade a spade, not a digging implement adapted for being pushed into the ground with the foot. You have to understand where James is coming from. The gospel should result in changed, transformed lives, changed to become more and more like Jesus. And this is what James passionately longs to see among the people of God. And so today we come to chapter 3 in our studies in the letter of James, and this passage falls into two sections. The first, verses 1 to 2, on the power of the tongue, particularly its misuse and the damage it can cause. And verses 13 to 18, on the power of godly wisdom that should mark our proper use of the tongue. The tongue's a key theme of James. One commentator says that out of 32 imperatives in this letter that deal specifically with ethics, 29 of them are to do with speech. But chapter 3 begins somewhat surprisingly with a sobering verse about teachers within the church. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Hold on a minute, James. Surely teachers are one of the gifts of God to the church, along with apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors. So why are you positively not recruiting teachers? Surely in your day, and indeed in ours, we need lots of good faithful teachers who rightly handle the word of truth. 
In your day, perhaps only 10% of the people could read. And books were rather scarce. So what are you saying here? How are the people to learn without teachers? There is a very real sense in which good, faithful preachers stand up trembling in the pulpit. It's a great responsibility to be true to the whole of the scriptures, not to go beyond them. And at the same time, to be sensitive to what the Spirit of God wants to bring to the people of God today. The pulpit is no place for preachers to trumpet their own opinions or a platform to enhance their own egos. But James suggests there's even more. Those who stand to teach must be diligent to obey their own sermons, for they cannot plead ignorance before the judgment throne of God. Jesus said, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. So humility should grace the presence of all faithful preachers because they know their own hearts and their own failings. For as James said, we stumble in many ways, verse 2. So in the light of our own weaknesses, teachers should humbly feed the flock with the true word of God. The motivation of every preacher should be firstly that God is glorified and honoured in all that is said, because it is true to his word. And secondly, that the light of the message is shone on Jesus, not on the one who delivers it. Now, because James starts this chapter with a word about teachers, some commentators feel this whole chapter is primarily about the way in which teachers should and shouldn't use their tongues. Now, certainly, Teachers do have to be particularly careful in what they say, but that goes for all of us as disciples of Jesus. So we all need to give careful attention to these words. As George Guthrie said, to a great extent, the health of any church depends in part on the discipline with which members are able to subdue this wildest of beasts, the tongue. What James is concerned about is the right use of the tongue. It's all about tongue control. As Barclay says, let a man before he speaks remember that once a word is spoken, it's gone from his control. And let him think because before he speaks, although he cannot get it back, he will certainly answer for it. And these things become much more important in these days of social media and live streaming. It's not just the immediate hearers, but the whole world can hear. And what's more, they can play it back ad nauseam. As Tom Wright observed, one unwise remark reported and circulated on the internet can cause riots the other side of the world. James goes on to compare the tiny tongue within the human body to a rudder for a ship or a bit in the mouth of a horse, both suggesting that even small things can exercise great power. He then highlights the enormous damage that a little tongue can do, just like one spark 
can set off a forest fire. You might remember a few years ago, there was a huge fire on the hills to the west of us, all started by a spark from farm machinery on dry vegetation. Anyone who's dealt with large fires knows that burning embers can rise up with the heat and be blown some distance away and start new fires. One of the most frightening sights to see and hear is a large out-of-control fire with the wind behind it. You would have seen examples on your TVs from last year's summers in Europe and the USA. Now, says James, that's the sort of damage that the tongue can produce in the lives of others. An ill-advised word or false rumour can spread like wildfire, and it spreads from dung to dung. Yet James is not talking not only of an ill-advised word, but more deliberate damage from the tongue, as he calls the tongue a world of unrighteousness, a restless evil, full of deadly poison. And yet the tongue can be powerful for good or for evil. The scripture emphasizes both the good and the evil that the tongue can create. Proverbs 10, verse 11, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Proverbs 15, 1, a soft answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 18.21 Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Just consider what effect an encouraging word, a word of love or a word of comfort can produce. And then consider the opposite, the effect of a discouraging word, a put down, a word of rejection or a blatant lie. How many Christians carry the scars or unhealed wounds from unkind words that have been said to them? As Douglas Moo said, far easier to heal are the wounds caused by sticks and stones than the damage caused by words. Don't carry these words, friends. Don't carry these wounds. Jesus came to bring healing. James goes on to discuss the inconsistency in the way we use our tongues in verses 9 to 12. Natural springs are common in the Middle East. Some are fresh and some are salty. But none of them are both. One day fresh, the next day salty. So you have no idea what to expect. Isn't this one of the things we expect about mature Christians? That they're consistently giving out fresh, life-giving words. But unfortunately, age itself doesn't necessarily bring maturity. Matthew Henry wisely comments, other sins decay with age. This, the tongue, many times gets worse. We grow more froward and fretful as natural strength decays and the days come on in which we have no pleasure. When other sins are tamed and subdued by the infirmities of age, the spirit often grows more tart, nature being drawn down to the dregs, and the words used become more passionate. Hmm. All this written several centuries 
before the advent of the phrase grumpy old men. All of us of whatever age have to be vigilant in our control of our tongues. James's emphasis on the wise use of the tongue forms the remainder of the chapter. He continues his theme from the previous section. What kind of fruit are you producing? What kind of spring are you? Fresh water giving life or brackish water bringing death? What's the source of your life? What controls you? And the key word in this section is wisdom. But James quickly points out there's a difference between people pretending to have true wisdom and those that really do. It's all to do with the source of the wisdom. It's rather similar to James's earlier argument in chapter 2, where he challenged those who claim to have faith to show it by the way they lived, as Zane spoke of last week. But here James challenges those who claim to be wise to show it by the way they live and speak. It's a section of sharp contrasts, and James, in his very direct manner, is emphasizing the contrast between godly wisdom and earthly wisdom. He gives us an ever-increasingly depressing description of earthly wisdom and its effects in verses 14 to 16, before turning to the beauty of heavenly wisdom in the next two verses. So we have a study in two halves, classic James fashion. But this morning, due to time, I want to concentrate on godly wisdom, wisdom from above, because here is the secret to tongue control for the Christian. Godly wisdom should be the gatekeeper to our mouths. Is it wise to open my mouth or wiser to shut it? If I do open my mouth, how does wisdom direct what I say? James emphasizes that the characteristic of godly wisdom is meekness or humility. With humility comes wisdom, says Proverbs 11, verse 2. Humility follows from the fact that in Jewish eyes, wisdom came from God. Proverbs 2, verse 5 says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. James reminded, of this in, reminded us of this in chapter 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. Psalm 111 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. Now the fear of the Lord is not just an Old Testament phrase. It's a New Testament theme as well. For example, we find in Acts chapter 9 that the early church was walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. God is the Almighty Holy One who will not bow in reverence and all before him. James in verse 17 gives seven qualities of godly wisdom. John Blanchard wrote, all of them should be developed. We ought not to be sanctified in spots. James begins with an inward quality, purity, and then goes on to describe the outward expressions 
starting with peaceable or peace-loving. It's a similar sequence to the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. As well as purity and peaceable, James adds gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Each of these qualities is to be pondered a while. Those who exercise godly wisdom display the same positive characteristics we're encouraged to cultivate in other parts of the New Testament. There are striking parallels to this passage in Paul's description of the characteristics of love in 1 Corinthians 13, or the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, or the put-on section of Colossians 3. It's noteworthy that the last in the list of Paul's fruit of the Spirit is self-control. The Holy Spirit is key to tongue control. Paul also contrasts human wisdom with wisdom taught by the Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where he also says that Christ is the wisdom of God. A Christ-like character would display wisdom. Godly wisdom is peaceable, but peace is something to be made, to be worked at. Those who make peace, verse 18. Paul says in Ephesians that we're to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. How do we actually go about it? Every time we're offended, reviled, wronged, abused, criticized, or slandered, we have an opportunity to be peacemakers. Do not be overcome with evil but overcome evil with good. We also need to examine carefully what we're told about someone before we pass it on. Did the person actually say this? Was what the person said taken out of context? What indeed was the context with which he was talking? Is this a typical thing that this person would say, or is there something else going on in their life? We need to carefully weigh words with the wisdom of the Spirit of Christ before we pass them on. So we look briefly at James chapter 3. In summary, we can say the tongue is very powerful for good or for harm. It needs a strong controlling influence and the wisdom of God should be the gatekeeper to our words. And the wisdom of God we receive from the Spirit of God. And I want to finish with this picture, which shows the contrast between the out-of-control fire, the wildfire, and the fire under control within a wood burner. One is a curse and is destructive. The other is a blessing and brings warmth and comfort. How are we doing in tongue control? The health of our church lives and our family lives depends upon it. Thank you.
If you'd like to connect with more of our online content at Holy Trinity in Richmond, you can do that by going to our YouTube page simply by searching for Richmond Anglican Aotearoa. You can also touch base with us online at our website or on Facebook by searching with those same words. Friends, we're so thankful that you've joined us online and that you're enjoying our content. We really do hope and pray that God is blessing you through it. If you've got any feedback, you can touch base with me, zane at richmondparish.nz. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.